Where Kindness Lives is designed to cultivate a kinder world by helping to inform and inspire. Hosted by Jenny Sager, head of Nextdoor Australia, the neighbourhood network connecting you to what truly matters so you can belong. We'll chat to the most thought-provoking individuals paving the way to positive change and hear from neighbours who deliver small acts of kindness every day. So come on a journey to Where Kindness Lives. Hey everyone, I'm Jenny Sager and my guest today is known as the Queen of Common Sense. Maggie Dent is one of Australia's most loved parenting authors and educators. Her Parental as Anything podcast is a total favorite of mine. I've got so many questions for her. I just want to dive straight in. Maggie, welcome to Where Kindness Lives. I want to start by asking you, why is it that when I tell people I'm a mom of three boys, they go, oh God, poor you, or oh my gosh, that must be a handful. But when people say they have three girls, they get Oh, isn't that lovely? Oh, how gorgeous. I know, right? What is that? This is called gender conditioning again. And and look, when I had my third, I had people saying to me, oh, never mind. Gosh, you poor thing. And then when I had my fourth, you know, I had a lady come up and said she'd lit candles in the local Catholic church to pray for me because it was just going to be so hard. And and that's when I started thinking, hang on, is, is 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 this a real thing? And I think what people are referring to is the um, the physicality, you know, and the impulsivity of boys that, um, you know, except that I was both of those as a girl. But you're right, and I can tell you now that having just written this big book, yeah, girls are very complex, but they don't sort of, people don't notice it when they're little and sweet. It's so true, but there are, as you also say, there are lambs in those little boys around yeah. as well. And, <laughs> you know, they're not all high energy yeah. and, yeah. And they're all equally as valid and that's one of my biggest messages, isn't it, that we still think that if you're not a winner or you're loud or you're confident as a boy, then you're somehow failing. And I guess we're doing the opposite end as well, aren't we, that we're saying it's okay for our girls to be that. So what we want is we want our kids to be as confident and capable as they can be with a capacity for being considerate and thoughtful and kind and that it's not a negative. But, well, we've got a bit of work to do, haven't we? And how did you become an expert in all things boys besides having four of your own and now girls because your new book is about girls? You know, this is an accidental journey for me. I was, a, you know, born on in the wheat belt in Western Australia, the fifth of six children on a farm. And I think that great childhood of enormous amounts of freedom and opportunities to experience real life and actually having to work as well because we're part of the workforce gave me kind of an ethical base around the capability of children. And then I became a high school teacher, which I loved passionately. And then when I had my four sons, um, I came back a much better teacher, which is nice. I was in high school, though, so I found, you know, little kids a little bit tricky because I hadn't studied any of that and it was such a long time since I'd been one. And then when I went back teaching, I found I was really good at helping the kids that were struggling Um, you know, I just seem to have a knack for being able to help them understand and navigate their life. And so I decided to do a post-grade diploma in counselling and therapy and then became a full-time counsellor. And I guess that's when I started to realise that when a child or an adolescent is struggling, then we need to work with the family. And then I started to run parenting kind of little sessions and they were going, that's just so good. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll run another one. And, you know, I I wanted to reaffirm that each child born is a one-off never been here before, never will be here before. So one size fits all, whether it's around education or it's around how tall they are or, you know, how many words they can speak when they're two is just just 
we need to just drop it a bit, right? You know, there are those sorts of things started to worry parents because they had a little guideline, you know. And of course, I had boys who, you know, mine weren't colouring in the lines even by seven because they thought that sucked, right? Um, but they were very good at jumping and kicking and climbing and problem solving and Duplo and Lego, but they just, that stuff. Yeah, yeah it is so true. Well, we know that boys and girls obviously develop differently as well, but kindness is really important for everyone. Um, can you explain how unkind words and actions impact boys specifically and how parents can address those things with boys when they've been hurt by someone who's treated them unkindly? And then how does that differ to girls? Because I think Again, going back to stereotypes, you know, there's this idea that boys are not sensitive and emotional like girls are. But, you know, obviously when they're experiencing unkind actions or, or words in school or on the playground, it, uh, it affects both of them. So how do you as parents treat that with both boys and girls? What we tend to notice is your temperament can influence the way that you interpret the world, right? And that's those rooster confident kids out there often... Uh, tougher and, you know, they just deal with stuff. And if someone's awful, I'll probably give something back. But we tend to find our lambs are far more sensitive to those things. But what I discovered when I was working with um, with boys and even teen boys is that sometimes they, they misread um, the look on mum's face or something she's upset about. And because they tend to tell me that I'm always in trouble, I'm always doing things wrong because I'm more impulsive, that they often see that is a sign she doesn't love them. And when I say that in a seminar, you can see the tears come up because so often we, and I bet you've done it too, we just, we roll our eyes going, not again, like there's more we on the floor, right? Can't they aim like in there? Or, um, you know, they just jumped on their brother from the top bunk thinking it'd be funny, you know, like we go, we just explained that one before, right? So it seems like they're always in trouble. That's their lens. Um, but what it is, it's that fragility. So what we know is, and, and so with girls, they will probably know because they actually are way more mindful and thoughtful about That's why they don't get busted as much because they think before they act, whereas <laughs> it's, not, it's still developing in boys. And so I think um, but what happens for girls is and it's this it's this notion of self-worth Jen if I can explain that it makes a lot of sense to kind of the difference we have when we've got you know a um a child who's you know in that box and that for boys um their self-worth how good they feel about themselves is determined by how they interpret what they do so if they've won something or they've jumped higher than someone else or they've they've built the best you know, tower in their Lego, they they absolutely go, yay, I did good. So give themselves self-worth. And I, I kept thinking, what do we do as girls? And you'll know this is why it's so difficult for us all, is that because there's this whole notion that girls need an alliance to survive, so friendships are really big, what tends to happen is um, that girls are looking for validation, acceptance and um, connection from a tribe of girls and so, therefore, if the girls like them, then they give themselves self-worth. And that's just fraught with just so much difficulty because their emotional world is far more intense to start with. We're more likely to ruminate on negative things. We're more likely to remember negative things. 
And so if a girl says something unkind during the day and we're not able to flick that off, we'll come home and it's still going around and around and around and we just feel worse and worse and we get flooded with all those big feelings. That can be hard to share. And um, so the other part too, so self-worth is really important, temperament's really important. And the third one is what do we do when our brain um, perceives threat? So when the amygdala fires up and gets upset, um, the, in boys and men, the next centre in the body that we're in the brain that fires up is actually the body centre, which is so often why they kick or throw something or brah. So for girls and women, it goes limbic brain followed by word centre. So often what comes out in those moments can be a retaliation that's equally as painful and bad, or they can be, shall we say, irrational. Um, and, yeah, that's that, that can add to all the, the whole sense of how do I support her to understand what's going on underneath there, and that's why a big part of my book is, you know, being an emotional coach to help her with what are the big feelings. Was that something someone really said or did I just think they said that? Um, and that's where it can be, you know, they're just so much more complex. How do we as parents address peer pressure with our kids? Oh, it's such a big one. You know, the whole notion of connectedness, and this is really why kindness is such a big thing, is being able to learn how to, you know, treat others in a way that um, is not only respectful but, you know, is about bringing out the best in each of us. Um, and what we do know is that to do that well, you actually need to have your fully developed prefrontal cortex that is able to make pause and go, wow, um, I wonder what's going on for them or I wonder how I can help rather than, you know, that retaliate, which is what children will do. So the influence of, um, you know, peers and friendships is huge and, you know, and it's a huge difference between them again. You know, one of my... Um, one of my most popular blogs is Fragile Boy Friendships, where I explore that it's it's not complicated but still really important, but you can talk to older men and say, so how many friends do you have? And they'll often say two, two's often as that's it. And when did you last see them? And they might say 15 years ago. Now, what they've developed since is acquaintances, but it's like the friendships and bonds that they formed probably before eight or nine or ten that can deepen in adolescence, uh, they are besties for life. Nothing could change that, right? But they still don't contact them and they don't necessarily catch up with them. Um, and that's what drives the loneliness later on in life. Do you know what I mean? Because if you haven't, it's kind of hard to go back, even though you still think, you know what I mean? So with us, um, with, with, with the females, we are capable of having more friendships um, and what we are biologically wired to do again is to be a part of a friendship group at all costs because it's more important than being solo because it's it's a like a biological drive. And, yes, there will be times, you know, and I, I've heard of it many millions of times in my <laughs> counselling and my journeys of how a girl is now choosing to behave in a way that's not in alignment with her family's values because belonging there is just way more important on, on all sorts of levels, even though she can't explain it. That's a big message, isn't it, that I, I want them not only to recognise when others might need some support and help, but am I identifying when I need some support and help and can I ask for help 
that that is equally as important as little boys feeling vulnerable when they are vulnerable and not having to mask that as well. So they're two really important things on either side that that really can influence it. And how do you teach, especially younger kids, whether it's boys or girls, how do you teach that self-kindness? Well, I, I kind of love to keep things simple because sometimes I think our expectations for children and what they can do is too high too early. Sometimes we have to also... Um, know that nature is a natural restorative um, place to be for anybody. So I always would argue, get your children outside. Just take them for a walk. You know, if you haven't got a dog, pretend you have, you know, whatever. Just get them outside because we know that helps. And then the last one is that wonderful, you know, thing that says add water. <laughs> and I quite often bath, I put fill a bath, you know, when they were toddlers or, you know, preschool age, just, you know, and float boats and let's just chill, right? So I I think some of those things, you've just got to work out that blend around yourselves. But I do think I did model deep breathing a lot. And I know that, um, you know, there were times I would say to me, you need to take three deep breaths, mummy. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so can you see, I think it's at times that, yeah, you'll probably, there'll be some children that will just dive into your, you know, the smiling mind tracks and things just happily but if you lay down with them, they'll often, you know, I'm going to do this for me, do you want to lay with me? And what we found when we started bringing the, um, the calming audios into classrooms, it was boys that would turn up at quickest because, you know, school's a bit like a war zone for a lot of boys. There's so many things they've got to remember and there's so many rules and, you know, the dynamics of, you know, behaving in class and having fun. So when they found a place they could come in, lay down on the floor, no one was going to hit them. They were the ones turning up the earliest and sometimes they would say, I just think I got rid of all this, this stuff inside me when I was breathing because I've been really cross lately. And one of the favourites we find for boys is calming the angry ant. And there were times that um, even in preschools that if an educator used that, the boys would start puffing up against a you know, tree going, <laughs> getting rid of my <laughs> angry ant because it's red <clears throat> and then I'll turn into a calm animal and they were actually doing that in an imaginary fun way because it was a bit fun so I think we just we just keep looking and trying and being um and being as calm as we can um, good enough yeah exactly exactly I want to talk about um the tie-in with community because one thing I really loved that I heard you say recently in one of your talks I attended was an example about a boy who had gone away to boarding school and wasn't feeling great about himself. And then he came back and he went into the, I think it was the news agent. Yeah. And, and the news agent was like, I hear you're doing really great at school. And like just hearing that from somebody in the, in the community really perked him up. And, and I loved how you said that a good role model can be found anywhere and that this can be someone in the community. It doesn't always have to be your parent or your family. And so can you talk a little bit about that and how as community members, obviously next door is all about neighbors and the neighborhood and the community. Like how as community members can we kind of look after the, the children in our community in that way as well? I was raised if you wanted to, um, you know, build a golf course where you just got the community to do it. Um, and if a farmer had become ill or something awful had happened, then if it was a crop that needed to go in or a you know, crop that needed to be taken off, we all turned up. Look, there'll be heaps of kids 
There would be equipment everywhere. There would be women making sandwiches and baking scones. So, And also us kids often helped in that. We were helping to make the sandwiches. So I grew up with that. I just didn't know that that doesn't happen in every other neighbourhood. And so um, I can't I can't stress it enough. And I think we saw that during the early parts of COVID when um, children were out, you know, drawing footpath pictures outside elderly people's homes to cheer them up. And, um, you know, I think um, we underestimated, Jen, and that's what I, I, you know, my heart sang, you know, when I know the work you do, because when we have our community watching out for our kids, um, everyone's in a better space, you know, and it's one of the um, opportunities that we had, I learned from a, um, a couple of UK mums who create um, playing out, which is where they get to close a street, because in the UK, the streets are narrow. So, um, you know, it's you can't play on the street and plus the cars are near it. And so there's one Sunday a month that they close the street and the children have the street to play on all day. And what they found, they thought they were doing it for the kids. But over time what was happening is these little tables were turning up and people were turning up with morning and afternoon tea and the elderly were coming out of their homes. Lonely elderly people were coming out meeting the children and the children are, are chatting to them. The children now recognise them in the shops and the children now um, help them at different times with their bins. And, you know, like when she was telling me the story and, you know, I just thought, gosh, that's what I grew up with and wouldn't it be beautiful and that that's exactly what you do, that we want people who are, are safer now. You know, there's so many dishonest people out there. You can't necessarily know that someone is who they say they are, but when you know the look of their face and their children. We have to accept too that um, not everyone is going to be warm and fuzzy, but they still will watch out for your kids. We had a really grumpy man that lived in the street where my boys were and he was always growling when he rode on the bike on the road and stuff. But one of my boys came off one day and he was out there as a really caring human, you know, patching him up and cheering him along and carrying his broken bike home. So I, I think sometimes... People want to connect more. They want to care more. Um, but we've become kind of a world where we all do things through screens and we're not, you know, hello. And I know just, you know, when we model hello and we smile and I, I'm a, I'm, I know some people must look at me thinking I'm a bit weird because I will smile at, you know, most people I pass. And they kind of look, you look behind sometimes and they're going, who? That person just smiled at me, you know, because they're often got buds in now, so they can't hear you say hello. It's so yeah. true. And that's exactly why Nextdoor was actually originally was created to combat loneliness and social isolation. And I, I always talk about <clears throat> my middle son is kind of always doing his own experiment where he says hello to everyone he sees on the road. And he and you just <laughs> see how the younger the person is, the less responsive they are. And then when you get to kind of like late 20s, early 30s, they kind of smile back or say hi. But, you know, younger than that, they're just on their phones. And then as you get older, they'll stop and have a chat. Or And he's very conscious of it. He'll say to me, oh, mom, how come that person, like, just walked right by and didn't say hello back? And such an interesting, you know, impromptu sociological experiment. But I think loneliness is definitely, we know, we see the stats all the time in Australia that loneliness is on the rise in teenagers specifically, and young, you know, 20s, early 20s. And so I think, um, you know, it goes back to not just kindness, but it's also about protecting our kids and making sure they have that network as they get older to not be lonely and to have those people that they can lean on because technology is certainly 
causing that divide. And so how do you, um, I guess, as parents encourage your kids to like, let them know that that's okay. I mean, I think we all try to, you know, we're friends with our neighbors and we're doing those things in the community, but how do you then get your kid to a place where you're protecting them of don't talk to strangers, but then you're also like, well, no, it's okay to talk to these strangers. (laughs) I think um, there's a few different messages in that. And the very first thing is that we have conversations often you know, around dining tables or if you're on the couch, on the couch, it doesn't matter, but we actually do have to have the conversations. One of the things they do in protective education is they say you've got to have five people who are your safest. Um, And obviously, because what we do know, sadly, Jen, is it's 92% of the um, adults who harm children, um, they know. So the the stranger danger is a really big kind of myth thing in lots of ways. But also we go through the what-if scenarios in our life. So what if this happened? What would you do? Where would you run if you were on the corner of that street and you had some bigger boys who were looking like they were going to have, where would you go then? So we actually co-problem solve with our children. It's a really, really important thing. But also knowing, you know, we used to have safe house stickers out the front And I felt that was beneficial too because if you're a child and you're running away from, you know, someone who's wanting to pinch your bike, you want to pull into a house that someone's going to say, yeah, you're right, come on in here. And I, so I kind of think you can't put the signs out but we have those conversations again. The other one too is I just think communities need to do more things like you have fun days for nothing else but fun. So the more fates we have, the more teddy bears picnics, the more days we want to raise money for cancer or daffodil day or something where all of us turn up. So in Western Australia, they've got one in one community where it's a dog and a ute. I sound like a really dumb one, but, you know, thousands of people turn up with a dog and a ute. But it's what happens over the weekend that is just, you know, fills not only, you know, the coffers of the community but everyone comes up each year and we connect and we connect. And what we do then is we're connecting to communities outside of the one we're in, but often they'll run into those people in other places. And that's when you know, as humans, we're biologically wired to be social beings. We're not supposed to be alone. And we know that one of the challenges for young people is is the reluctance for help-seeking Um, when they are struggling, you know, and I think that's what we want to model for our kids that, you know, we model that we can ask for help from all sorts of people. Um, And I think just keep building the positive view of the world. I think the world is just looks nastier, Um, more poor behaviour. We have politicians behaving badly. When you want to teach your children about relational aggression, just look in, you know, the places where it shouldn't be modelled. And so we do need those conversations on, you know, the fact that, you know, name callings and put downs and exclusions are not behaviour we recommend. So if somebody is being unkind to you, you're absolutely able to say, no, stop, I don't like it, I'm out of here. So you see there's two sides to it. But when someone is has not got all those things up, we need to help them recognise that that could be a potential And then I think we marinate them in the stories, Jen. There are so many beautiful stories. It's one of my challenges to find those beautiful stories that come from communities, you know, where the whole community, look how many people turn out when there's a child lost. If you want to know how your community, like we are basically good, decent human beings with a pulsing heart that does care. And I think we've got to make sure we don't get contaminated by the continuous images. And I'm really worried a little with the quality of, um, films and things that 
our children can get to see quite easily that are often violent, that are often against a culture or against women or men. And I just think, where are all the warm, fuzzy stories we used to have? You know, I don't think there's enough, I don't think there's enough really good family movies out there that affirm life and affirm the fact that we can be a bit different and yet still be a valued part of a neighbourhood where where people genuinely care. I do want to share a, a next-door neighbour story with you about a boy named Robert Coleman, who's from Sydney's Northern Beaches. And um, he basically went on next door and decided to start his own business at the age of 13. He's now 14. Um, he had an interview recently on a current affair. So I just want to play you a bit of that interview and yeah. then hear your thoughts about someone as ambitious as Robert at the age of 13. I've always quite liked it, but I've never favoured myself as a like professional. But then I've just been watching a lot of YouTube videos and reading a lot of online forums on how to fix certain things. So how do you manage all of your online learning and your two part-time jobs? It requires a bit of help from mum and dad, and I just do my work on time, get it done, and then I just have heaps of free time after school. So how much money are you making per week? Maybe like 20 or $30 a week. It's pretty good. <laughs> How cute is he? Yeah. So, oh, you know. Absolutely love it. Can I share one quick story that this kind of illuminated for me, you know, exactly what you're doing but why we need it? And that was I, um, as a young teacher, about three years out teaching, I ended up back in the city to teach. So, I'm, a, you know, I'd only taught in the country and being a country kid who went to go- country government high schools, um, anyway, the postie uh, was quite chatty and he said to me that the elderly lady that lived next door to me was quite unwell. And so I promptly went off and baked a big pot full of chicken soup and I've knocked at the door with a crusty loaf of bread and she's come out and looked quite unwell and I said, look, I've baked you some soup and, and here's some bread. And she looked at me and um, she said, so how much do I owe you? And I said, uh, my pot back. <laughs> and she's 77 years of age and she had never experienced that. And I, I did. I, I remember walking back in my home, um, you know, and I just felt so deeply sad that that can be the reality because I know it doesn't have to be that. some rapid fire questions to you that we call the kind carousel. This is just a a bit of fun um, and just about you personally. So first up, you obviously talk about children all day. What's the topic you like discussing with your adult friends most that has nothing to do with kids? Uh, What books are we reading? On that note, while we're talking about books, when you see one of your books published for the first time, what comes to your mind straight away? Oh, I'd love to say pride, but quite often it's a sense of dread that maybe I have somebody won't like it and I've been too big for my boots. You know, the conditioning I had as a little girl, uh, the first part is that. And then the second part is um, I just need to learn to accept that I um, I, I need to feel okay about it because I've invested so much time and energy and I know in the deepest part of my heart that it is going to help someone somewhere. Oh, and that's certainly been proven time and time again. Um, what does treating yourself look like? Okay, so when I'm I'm really in that space, not only do I walk my dog, Hugo Walter, I garden. Um, I love gardening. I love baking and I do tend to bake for others when I'm tired. And also I love my chooks. 
I go and talk to my chalk. Again, right there with you, baking is my form of therapy and, and always has been. Okay, what's one non-essential item that you have to take with you when you travel somewhere? Well, I always take an essential oil just in case I'm going to need to be touched and reminded to calm down. It, it's not essential, but I do know that every now and then at the end of a long trip, I'm starting to yearn for the smells of home and I'm missing home. So that reminds me of home. I think that's probably it. Break out that lavender. Okay. And yeah. last one, if your career ended suddenly, what would your backup career be? What would you try your hand at next? Oh, I'd just be the best nanny on the... No, that, that's the first thing. I have said this a few times. I did work in palliative care and I think I'd probably go back to being a death doula. Oh, amazing. Thank you, Maggie, for all of the incredible work that you're doing. I hope it's not the last time that we speak. Please don't forget to check out Maggie's new book, Girlhood. I I gave a giggle to myself because I got it the other day and then promptly after I looked at it, ran it up to my neighbor who has three girls of her own. I thought you probably need this a bit more than I do having three boys, but please check it out. It's just as incredible as all of her other books. Maggie, we love you and hugely appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Jen, thank you. Thank you for everything you're doing for connecting humans on our earth.